All right, if you brought your Bible, go ahead and open up to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. We've been anticipating the start of this new series for a couple of months now, our study in the book of Acts. Uh, there's a couple purposes of why we're here right now. Number one, chronologically, it's the continuation of the story we've been in for the last 13 months, right? The life of Jesus. He died. He was resurrected. Now what? Right? We know that he's going to ascend into heaven. He's going to leave physically. So what was that all about? Why did he leave? Why did he, why did he do all these things and, and, and you know, die only to be gone? Right? So the book of Acts continues that story and tells us why. In fact, it introduces us to the church, which is obviously something that's very familiar with us. We're a part of that church. And so Acts is the origin story of this church that you and I are experiencing even right now in this very moment. So that's a good reason to study the book of Acts. There's another reason as well. If you were here about six weeks ago, Lloyd and I were here together and we talked about the season that we're in right now. And we said, you know, a good word to keep in mind for this season is renewal. What would God have for us for the next 20 years in the history of Fellowship Bible Church? We celebrate that 20-year anniversary coming in this spring. And if you were here, you would remember this letter A. We talked about it this way. Jesus is plan A. And there is no plan B. Now, what's interesting about this, if you think about it, the fact that Jesus left and the fact that the church is now called the body of Christ on earth means that in a sense we are now plan a for the hope of the world and there is no plan b so what does it actually mean for us to live into this calling that we have to represent christ to be the body of christ in a world that desperately needs christ that needs hope that needs life that needs salvation we represent plan a and so we've decided to call this whole series plan a now when you turn to the book of Mark, some of you found a car, or uh, not Mark, I, I got to get that habit out of my head. That's going to be hard, by the way. Acts, some of you found a card in it that we gave you six weeks ago in that same message that just has the letter A, and we had you write some names on it. If you found that card when you opened to Acts, just hold on to it for a minute. We asked you to put it there before. We're going to come back to it at the end of the message today. If you didn't have a card or you took yours home or lost it or you know, recycled it or what have you, that's okay. You're going to have a chance to still be able to kind of interact around this idea at the end of the message. But just hang on to those cards if you have them. Now, I've got a, a big job this morning because I not only want to teach the first 11 verses of Acts, but I want to give you an overview of the whole book. And I want to sort of help you see the forest and not just the trees. So let's walk through this first part. And if I talk a little fast this morning, it's because I've got a lot of ground to cover. So buckle your seatbelts. We're going to move very, very quickly. Let's start with some background information about this book so that we can have the context before we jump into it. I want you to interact with me a little bit. So I'm going to ask a question or two and literally just kind of shout out if you know the answer. First question is this. Anyone know who wrote the book of Acts? There it is, right there on the front row, and a bunch of other people too. Congratulations. Luke wrote the book of Acts. Now, you also, if you're thinking about this, there should be a little bell that goes off in your head. Didn't Luke write another book? Well, he sure did. The Gospel according to Luke, right? One of the four Gospel accounts that we have. We just went through Mark, but Luke is actually very similar to Mark. He uses a lot of the same source material, but Luke is a lengthier version. It's a longer history of that. Did you know that Acts is actually the sequel? It's the part two of what Luke started doing in his gospel according to Luke. And we'll come back to that in a minute. So that's the first question. Second question, what do we know about Luke? 
What are a couple things that just pop in your mind when you hear Luke, you kind of associate Luke with? He's a doctor, right? He's a physician. I think that, that's what I heard that emerged, and that's true. We know that that's what he did vocationally. He was kind of bivocational in a, in a way. He was a doctor. He was also ministry. Um, who, was, um, who was Luke's primary traveling companion in the New Testament? Paul. That's exactly right. Some of you know that Luke was friends with Paul. They were companions. And so in Paul's missionary journeys, Luke was a part of, of some of that travel. Now, that lets you know right away that Luke was an eyewitness account to some of the information, some of the uh, details and the narrative that we're going to hear about in the book of Acts. Uh, the, the last thing that I want you to know about Luke, not only is he a doctor, not only was he a companion of Paul, but Luke was a historian. And so we have these two histories in our Bible. One is the history of the life of Christ. The second is the history of the life of the church. Luke is very detailed in his history. Uh, in fact, when you go to seminary and you're starting to learn Greek, you, you, you never start with Acts or Luke because the Greek is too advanced. Luke was a very well-educated man and he wrote excellent Greek, as many of the historians did of his day. And by the way, you start with John. <laughs> John's kind of the most simple Greek in the New Testament. But Luke is some of the most advanced. Luke was a great historian, and you're going to see that. He gives details. He kind of gives time stamps. Um, he walks you through the story in a very chronological, very orderly, very detailed way, and that is so helpful for us. All right. Let's talk about date. I'm not going to ask you about this. Unless you've studied this, you probably wouldn't know. We don't know exactly when this book was written. Um, we have a couple of clues that it was probably written just before A.D. 70. A.D. 70, destruction of the temple by the Roman armies, not mentioned in Luke. It would, I mean, that's such a big deal. It's hard to imagine it wouldn't be mentioned. We also know Luke's uh, uh, account in Acts uh, kind of ends right near the end of Paul's life. Right? Paul, as we last see him in the book of Acts, is in chains. You know, he's, we, we know he's in Rome. He, he's going to die soon. Paul, as best as we can figure, died in the late 60s, maybe 68, 69. Um, Acts was probably composed right about that same point in time in the very late 60s. So you do the math. You know, you're 35 years or so after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus that Luke is writing this history. All right, there's a little bit of background. I want to say one more thing about this and talk about the title what does your Bible say is the whole title of the book of Acts? The Acts of the Apostles. Not a very good name. Not a very good name. Now, Luke didn't give it that name, right? He didn't title his own book. Later on, uh, the, the church gave it that name. Why do I say it's not a very good name? Yes, it's about the apostles, but they're not the center of the story. The center of the story is always God. And, and particularly in, in, in the book of Acts, you see the Holy Spirit just on the move. I think a better title might be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Now, on the other hand, it's also the continuing story of Jesus. It's the sequel. So you might think of it this way. The Acts of Jesus through the Spirit using the apostles. But That's a little bit of a long name. So we're just going to call it Acts. But keep those things in mind as we go. Now, there's a couple of big purposes for the book of Acts. For the church, it gives us not only a history of early Christianity, but it gives us an instructive picture of what the church was like when it started. You think about how helpful that is to us. But for the individual Christian, there's a purpose as well. 
In fact, I'd say it this way. I think the book of Acts, as much or better than any other book in the Bible, demonstrates what it looks like to live the Christian life with a sense of vitality, with a sense of life, with a sense of energy. So for those of you that you'd say, you know, my, my... Walk with God is a little bit stale right now. You know, my, my following Jesus could kind of use a, some newness of life. This is a great study for you. For those of you that aren't Christians and that aren't necessarily followers of Christ, you know, you're, you're here because, you know, your spouse wanted you to come or you're here because you're invited or you're here because you're checking out whatever reason that you're here, but you don't really believe in Christ, you don't follow Christ. Here's something interesting from this book. Have you ever wondered how the Christian movement, which started with these few followers of Jesus, kind of exploded into this worldwide dominant uh, um, movement? This is going to answer that question to a large degree. And by the way, you might just find something, hear something that, that is intriguing to you, that kind of is an offer to be a part of this that has momentum, that has energy, which I think is something that we all deep down want. Um, I want to talk very briefly about the major themes of the book of Acts, and then we're going to jump into the text, all right? I can't cover these in detail due to our limited time this morning, but we're going to come back to these four themes throughout our study, but I want to give them to you now as a flyover. Major theme number one in the book of Acts is the multiplication of the mission and message of Jesus. The multiplication. How did it go, as I already said, from these 12, actually 11 now, men to an explosive movement? That's theme number one. Number two, the inclusion of the Gentiles in the people of God. That is massive. We don't think much about that now, but it was shocking to the first century Jews. They had to be convinced by the Holy Spirit that the message of the gospel was not just for the nation of the, the, the Israel, the Jewish people. It was for the people of all nations. And we're going to start even hearing about that in our text this morning. The third major theme, the organization and community life of the church. When you start to have a movement that grows, there has to be some organization around it. There's got to be leadership. There's got to be structure. There's, there's got to be ways that this movement, that this organization, you know, kind of gets some pillars that it will hold it up organizationally. We're going to talk a lot about the organization and the community life of the church in this book. And then the, the fourth key theme, I've, I've just called it the spectacular triumph of the gospel despite barriers and opposition, right? Rome is against this movement. The religious Jewish leaders are against this movement. It's like everywhere you look, there's obstacles, there's persecution, there's there's struggle involved in this, and yet the gospel triumphs spectacularly through these 30 years or so of history that this book covers. Now, here's our approach this morning is we will read all the way through our texts, which is the first 11 verses, I'm going to try to go as fast as I can, but I can't help but slow down on a couple of places just to explain some things. Then after we go through the 11 verses, I'm going to come back and do a deep dive on verse 8 because verse 8's the key verse of the whole book, the whole book, and we'll spend most of our message on verse 8. So let's jump in. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles 
whom he had chosen. Now, pause there for a minute because who is Theophilus? Right? That's the first question that should come to your mind. Answer, we don't really know. Best guess, Theophilus was a prominent Christian in the early church who more than likely commissioned Luke to write this history. Now, some people have said, actually, maybe Theophilus was all the people of God because in Greek, that name means beloved of God. However, Theophilus was a very common name in the first century and Luke writes it as if he's talking to a particular person and it matches the style of other historians such as Josephus in the first century who would begin their history addressed to the patron who commissioned them to write it. So best guess, in my opinion, Theophilus was a kind of a well-to-do Christian in the early age who commissioned Luke, the historian, to write this account. Let's keep going. Verse three, to these, meaning the apostles, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Verse four. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, quote, which, he said, you heard of from me, for John baptized with water. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Pause. This question is key. And it's exactly the question that you'd be asking if you were in their shoes. Because for any good Jewish man, woman at that time, when you start hearing about the pouring of the Spirit, you would immediately associate that with the kingdom that was to come. You would associate that with your salvation, not just spiritually, but politically. That the shackles, the chains that the Romans had put on us are finally going to be uh, you know, pulled off, that we're going to be unleashed as a people. And so they're asking Jesus, if the Spirit is coming, according to Old Testament prophecy, that must mean the kingdom is coming too. And Jesus is going to kind of say, not so fast. Literally, he's going to say, not so fast. Let's look at that. Verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Let's pause again. Let's talk about that. We're not going to do the deep dive on this verse, but I just want to say this. Jesus' answer to the question, is now the time to restore the kingdom, was two parts. Part number one, it's not for you to know the time. It's only for you to trust the Father who ordains the time. Part two to the answer while you're waiting, I've got a job for you to do. So that's how Jesus answers their question. Not so fast, not for you to know, you're gonna be waiting. And as you're waiting, I've got a job for you to do. Now let's finish out the passage starting in verse nine. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. By the way, cloud in scripture is almost always symbolic of the glory of God. As they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. By the way, two men in white clothing in Scripture, a hint for angels. Verse 11, they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up 
from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Now, I want you to see something here. What, what has Jesus just done? Like, what's just happened here in this passage? He's given them a game plan, and then he's left them, right? He said, this is how this movement is going to go, and it's going to spread. And he goes, but you're not going to be doing that with me, at least physically, at least physically. Now, what Jesus was doing in the way he answered their question and then by ascending into heaven at this moment was he was inaugurating an entirely new dispensation. Now, that's just a fancy word that means a period of time, an epoch, an era. We call it the church era, and it's still the period of time that you and I are in today. This period of time was inaugurated, was started right here in this passage. If Jesus had said, yes, it is time for the kingdom. Let's get this going. Let's get the party started. You and I wouldn't be here right now. We're in the era of the church. And this was a surprise to the Jewish people at this time. They were not expecting this. You know, theologians have called it all kinds of different things. But this, this era, this epic, the church age is what we're in as we wait for Jesus still to come back the way that he ascended. And all this is sort of born and birthed in this moment in time. Now, that's the forest of the passage. I want to show you the trees. One tree in particular is verse 8. Verse 8. I'm going to read it again. I just read it, but I want you to have it in your head a couple of times. And then I'm going to do a deep dive on a couple things. Here it is, Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, there's a lot packed in that one verse. In fact, uh, when I went to Dallas Seminary, uh, the famous Professor Howard Hendricks, we call him Prof, your first assignment in the first class you take at Dallas Seminary, the class is called Bible Study Methods. He says, turn to Acts 1.8. Your homework for tonight is to make 25 observations of this one verse. And you're thinking, I don't even think there's 25 words in the verse. How are you going to make 25 observations? So you go home and you sweat it all night and you, you come back. It's like, I think I, you know, I got, you know, some, some of them are, you know, maybe a little overlap, but I think I got 25 distinct observations. And then, you know, he takes the, the paper and he doesn't even look at it and he goes, okay, your homework for tonight is to go home and write 25 more unique, distinct observations. So you end up with 50. And what he's trying to teach you is to look, to see, to observe and so I want to share with you some of what's crammed into this passage. The first thing you need to know about this verse is it's the outline of the whole book of Acts. It turns out the outline for the book of Acts is geographical. All right, look, look at the verse, right? You're going to start in a specific geographical, geographical place. You're going to expand out a little bit into the surrounding countryside, Judea and Samaria. And then it's going to keep expanding even to the remotest part of the earth. Three different movements. The whole book follows these three movements. For you to really get this, you need to see it. So I brought a couple maps this morning. So let's put the first map up on the screen. Now, this is 
the area of the world where the book of Acts takes place. You might recognize where we're talking about here. This is the Mediterranean Sea. You have Italy, the boot up there in the upper left, kind of down here in the right. You have Israel and you have that red dot in Jerusalem. This is the first part of Acts. And as you can see, we put on there, Acts 1 through 7 takes place in Jerusalem the church in Jerusalem. Then there's going to be some persecution that's going to push the Christians out. Samaria. So let me show you where Judea and Samaria are. It's essentially the surrounding area, right? Judea was the southern part. The Samaria area is up, up in the northern part leading up to the Sea of Galilee. So the gospel is going to get pushed out, but we're still in a very tiny geographical location in Acts 8 through 12. Now, the last movement of the book is to, quote, the remotest parts of the earth. Acts 13 through 28 talk about Paul's journeys, Paul's missionary journeys. You've heard of these, yes? Paul leaves from that blue area and he goes all throughout the green area on these separate missionary journeys, starting churches, sharing the gospel. And where does Paul end up? He ends up in Italy, in Rome, which was the capital of the world, where from there the gospel was going to be able to go everywhere everywhere and i want you to see one last map let's put this last map up here you recognize this one you see that little green shaded area that's the place that all the action takes place now think about this for a minute what percentage of land mass was touched by the gospel in the book of acts well from a first century history standpoint, a huge area from a 21st century perspective, a very small segment. What does this mean? The story of the church continues. And here we are today. I mean, look at where we'd be somewhere, you know, in, in the middle of the U.S. somewhere. We are the remotest part of the earth from the first century perspective. The fact that we're sitting here today is exciting. It's thrilling. It means that this movement has continued ever expanding outward. And now we are a part of it. All right. That's the first thing you need to see about Acts 1.8. It's the outline of the whole book that will follow. Next, I want to drill down into three key words of this verse. And I'm gonna talk about each of them and explain them because you've got to understand these words if you're gonna understand the book of Acts and if you're gonna understand the application for your own life this morning and throughout this series. Word number one, power. I'll put it on the screen over here to my right. Power, power. Jesus says, you will receive power. Now, I'm going to talk about the Greek in each of these words, not just to sound fancy, but so that you can understand these terms more comprehensively. So let's talk about the Greek word for power. It is the word dunamis. Put it on the screen for us. Dunamis. Now, I know some of you just want to say it because it's kind of a fun word to say. You don't have to, but if you want to say it, let's say it together. Dunamis. What English word does that remind you of? Dynamite. It's dynamite. Also, we get the word dynamic, you know, other words like that. They all come from this Greek word dunamis. It's dynamite. This is power. So let's say you found yourself digging a tunnel. Don't know why you would, but let's just say you found yourself digging a tunnel. And you came across this big slab of rock. You cannot get through with your own little shovel or your, your little hand drill or whatever you're using to dig this tunnel. And, and a friend comes by with a stick of dynamite. He says, try this right? Obstacle removed, 
you can keep going, but you had to have a power that you did not have before. You had to have an explosion happen to free you up to keep moving. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you what you need because what you need, you do not yet have. I'm going to give you dunamis, power. Now, second key word in this verse, where does the power come from? The spirit. The spirit. This is a fascinating word in the Greek. The Greek for it is pneuma. Pneuma. And it has a kind of a, a silent P on the front. Let's put pneuma up there. All right, say it with me. Pneuma. Now, we also have English words that come from the Greek word pneuma. They're not as common. But think about the word pneumatic. You know, again, with the P, pneumatic, refers to anything having to do with, with air or gas. You know, uh, um, pneumonia, you know, because it's in your lungs and it's the air, it's the breathing. It all comes from this idea. In Greek, Pneuma means wind, it means breath, and it means spirit. Isn't that interesting that the idea of spirit is the same idea as of breath or, or the wind? In fact, that's also true in Old Testament Hebrew. Ruach in Hebrew is wind or breath, also spirit. So it's very interesting. Theologically, you kind of get this idea that, that there's a power that moves that you can't see. It's like the wind. And so you think about this. You're like, well, I don't know if that's as, as strong as dunamis, you know, as this dynamized power. How can this be the power source of the dynamite? Just think about the destruction from these hurricanes we've seen recently. And I don't think there's enough dynamite in the world to do what these two or three hurricanes have done in, in the last three or four weeks. I mean, th this is powerful. The wind is powerful. And Jesus is saying, it's not just literal wind, it's the holy wind, the Holy Spirit, the th third person of the Trinity, the Godhead, the person, the Holy Spirit, that is your power source. That's pneuma, that's spirit. And then there is a purpose that you would receive power from the spirit. The purpose is that you would be witnesses. Let's put that word over on the screen. The Greek is martyres. Say it with me, martyres. Now, at the risk of sounding like the, uh, the, the father on that big fat Greek wedding movie, you guys remember him? <laughs> He's like, give me a word and I will tell you how the root of that word is Greek right? This is what is true. It's actually true. It's so many of our words. <laughs> now, what English word do we get from martyres? Martyr. Martyr. Isn't that interesting? Now, in, in the, the first century Greek, martyres did not mean someone who's going to die for their faith, which is what martyr means. Martyres was just a witness, you know? Martyres is just someone that gives testimony. I heard it. I saw it. It's true. So in the court of law, you need martyrs in order to convict someone or to prove a point. However, in English, we've brought in this idea that it's someone who would die for their faith. Where did we get that from? Acts. We got it from the story of these martyrs who would rather die than stop being witnesses of what they have seen and heard. Isn't this interesting? Now, I, I, want, I want you to kind of go, go to the big picture on this for a little bit of a moment. You've got three words, but I want to propose to you that there's two primary concepts that the word in the middle holds together, both of them. 
You've got the idea of power, and you have the idea of our purpose, right? This is the reason why. This is the power to do it. This is the reason why. This is the what over here you are to be witnesses. This is the how you're going to have power and the Holy Spirit connects them both because the Holy Spirit's the power source and the Holy Spirit you're going to see in the book is what drives the mission. It enables them to be witnesses, even the kind of witnesses that would die for their faith and become our English martyrs. You see, the Holy Spirit is what's fueling this, but you have two big ideas. You've got power and you've got purpose. Now, this is where it gets fun. Think like a theologian for a minute. Okay, now, now what, 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 what do I mean when, when I say that? I, I mean, when, when you study a, a, a text, you're not just looking at the individual components and verses of the text. You also want to connect it to the big picture story of the Bible. You know, that's, that's kind of, you're moving from your exegetical focus to your theological focus, all right? Now, Think like a theologian. Where else have we seen God give mankind power and purpose? Think really early in the Bible. Y'all aren't going to help me out. That's okay. It's a little bit of a tricky question. Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, God creates mankind. What does he do? He says, I'm going to create mankind to be my image bearers. This is going to be their purpose, to bear my image, you know, and rule over the fish of the sea and all the animals that move, you know, it's Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27. Then you go to Genesis 2, which is a retelling of the creation account. And what does it say in Genesis chapter 2? That God breathed breath, <sighs> ruach, breath, spirit into the man to animate him, to bring him to life. So now you have mankind that not only has purpose, but they also have power. If you think about this, those are the two things that life requires. There has to be a reason for being and there has to be an energy that animates the purpose, you see. There's got to be a purpose and there's got to be a power. What's the source? It's the breath of God. It's the spirit. It's the third person of the Trinity. It's the wind, you see. It's the, the animating life power in a personal sense of the Godhead. Now, what is Jesus doing in this verse when you start understanding these three, these three words that kind of form two big concepts? He's creating something. He's doing exactly what he did at the beginning. He says, I'm going to bring something to life. And the first time around, it was the creation with human beings as the pinnacle of that creation on day six. This time around, it is this new thing called the church. It's new creation, if you will. And he's saying, I'm going to give you this new creation, this new entity during this new era, the church era, I'm going to give you purpose. Your purpose is to bear witness, bear testimony. By the way, don't miss the parallel to mankind's original purpose, to be an image bearer of its creator. Very similar idea, image bearer and witness. I'm going to give the church purpose and I'm going to give the church Power. I'm going to give it dynamite. I'm going to animate it. I'm going to give it, what's it need, what it needs to live into the purpose. Do you see the recreation happening? You start to see the DNA of this thing that we call the church. 
It's got power from the Spirit to live with purpose. And so you have new creation. New creation is actually happening in a sense right here in this verse. And so is it any surprise that we use phrases like born again to describe a believer? Is it any surprise when Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, you know? And and Jesus says, listen, Nicodemus, you must be born again, right? You've got to be born not just of water, which is probably a a reference to, you know, the the, the birth waters at your first birth. You've got to be born of spirit, born of breath, born of wind. And this is all coming true through what Jesus is doing. Last interesting theological connection I want to make here. I don't know if you guys get geeked out by all this stuff. I I do. I'm sorry. But I love this stuff. How did Jesus create in Genesis 1? He spoke. He spoke. How is he creating in Acts 1.8? He's speaking. The word of God is alive. The words of God are on the move. They do things. They create. True today as well. Now, Jesus in this verse is giving life. He's creating the church, but he's doing something more than just creating an institution. He's actually giving life to the individuals that make up the institution. And this is where I want us to start talking about personal application this morning for all of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ. We've looked at this theological idea of the birth of the church through an organizational or kind of an entity collective lens. Now I want to look at it through an individual personal lens. Let's start with the individuals that Jesus was speaking to. The 11 remaining disciples. He wasn't just sending them on a religious mission, was he? He was actually giving them life too. He was, in a sense, creating something new in them because what does life, true life, real life require? It always requires a purpose for living and the power, the animation to actually live. You see, Jesus wasn't just creating the church. He was saying to these 11 men, I'm recreating you as well. You now have the purpose that you were always born for and you're about to have the power that you're gonna need to accomplish that purpose. Do you see how this was so personal for them? This is why these crazy 11 men that had it all wrong throughout Mark's gospel and were in hiding at the resurrection and all these failures that we've talked about, this is how we're gonna actually see them live completely differently because they have been reborn with purpose and with the power from the Holy Spirit. Jesus is essentially telling them, here is a life of significance and meaning and the power to begin living it out. What's the application for us? What's being offered in Acts 1-8 to the disciples, the same things that you and I need today to have real life, to have life of purpose, to have life of meaning, to have life that is life so we're not just going through the motions anymore. Now, in order to live, and I don't just mean like breathe, I I mean like actually live a life that you want to live and long to live and were made to live, you've got to have purpose and you've got to have power. Without energy, you literally die. Without purpose, you want to die. 
You've got to have both, you see. And this is why our world is crazy right now. It's because it's lost purpose and it doesn't know that it has access to power through Christ of the Spirit to actually live in anything that means anything. Now, I, I want to demonstrate this a little bit. I, I brought up here an illustration. This is exactly what it looks like. It's just a plain piece of paper. And, you know, it's, I'm not going to do a magic trick. It's nothing special about this paper. It's a plain white piece of paper. And I have this here in my hand. And I, I was thinking earlier, all the things I could do with this paper. I, I, I could write on it. Maybe it'd start my sermon for next week. I could um, uh, maybe write a poem. Um, you know, those of you that are songwriters, like you could actually create something incredible just, you know, starting with this piece of paper. I thought maybe, maybe I could, you know, make a card, you know, fold it into a card and give it to my wife or my mom just as encouraging. That, that, that'd be a way that this paper would be put to great use. There's, there's probably a hundred ways I could put this paper to use, but I have one particular purpose in mind for this paper, and it needs kind of a design in order to live out this paper. You see, I want this paper to fly. Now, how in the world am I going to make this paper fly? Well, you know, some of you know what I'm doing up here, even if you can't see me. And the idea behind transforming this piece of paper from a plain old piece of paper to a piece of paper with purpose is that I, the designer, I, the creator, must imbue this paper, not just with purpose, which it now has, but also with power. Heads up. Here it comes. That was a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You know, my dad would be proud. He was a pilot and he taught me how to make that paper airplane. Now, here's the thing about your life, guys. All right. Second piece of paper without purpose, without power, you're not going to fly. The offer on the table is what you need for life that is true life. And it revolves around the idea that you would be an image bearer of your creator and even more specifically that you would be a witness to speak of, to live out what you have seen and heard and you need the animation, you need the power to do it. That's gonna come from the Holy Spirit. This is your new life as a believer in Christ. Now, I gotta get really practical as I, as I kind of start to move toward a wrap up here uh, because some of you are thinking, oh gosh, are you just saying that if I'm not actively knocking on doors and you know, evangelizing and sharing my faith that, that, that I'm not living out my purpose with power? And, and I'm just, you know, fluttering down. That's not exactly what I'm saying. Being a witness of Jesus certainly includes sharing your faith. It should. But that's just like the, the, the center dot of the target. The, the, the whole target itself is so much broader, so much bigger. Don't lose the fact that this, I believe, Acts 1.8 is a parallel to Genesis 1.26 and 127, where, where God says your purpose is to be an image bearer of God. Now, you've never seen Jesus face to face like these 11 had. You haven't heard Jesus speak audibly. You know, most of you, I guess. <laughs> I just threw that out there for the charismatics in the room. Um, <laughs> like the 11 had, all right? But what can you be a witness of? What can you give testimony of? If you are a believer in Christ, we give witness to the life that is in us. You are a witness of grace. You are a witness of forgiveness. You are a witness of redemption. You are a witness of a wrecked life put back together. You are a witness of peace 
some of you. You are a witness of a power that was beyond anything you could think or imagine that has come into your life through faith in Christ and you got to talk about it. You got to show up. You got to share it with people, not just verbally, although there's got to be that too, but it's got to be the whole way that you live your life. It's got to be the focal point. Think of it this way. For these 11 disciples, being a witness of Jesus was not a one day a week thing. It was their entire existence. It became sort of the center point of their life. You have to see how this purpose and the power to fill it engages not just your church life, but your whole life. That's the key to Acts. This purpose and power engages not just your church life, but your whole life. Let me illustrate this for a minute. The purpose given in this verse is big enough to encapsulate all your life and the power offered is strong enough to fuel everything you do. Can you imagine bringing into your work life a sense of purpose and power rather than just going through the motions to make it to Friday? Can you imagine having a vision for your marriage and for your family life that's purposeful and has the power to actually make it happen. That would be unbelievable for most of us. For those of you that are single, can you imagine living into that part of your life with purpose and then having the power in your friendships and your service and your relationships to show up with something more powerful than yourself, the love of Christ. For those of you that are going through struggles and challenges, which is almost all of us in some way, shape, or form, can you imagine each challenge or struggle being imbued with a sense of purpose and the power not just to survive it, but to become fully alive through it? This is the life-giving, animating power of the Spirit. And each of those scenarios and relationships I just went through always comes back to you being a witness of the life of Christ that is in you if you are a believer of Christ. Now, if you're not a believer of Christ, you know, I don't have a third piece of paper, but, but this is where you are. Like, no offense, but you don't, you're not animated. You don't have life. You don't have purpose. You don't have power. You may think, well, my, my purpose is having fun. My, my purpose is kind of just getting as much from life as I can and enjoying it. My purpose is whatever it is. You know, you can kind of slap all kinds of languages on it, but the reality is you're not animated. Scripture would say you're actually still dead. The offer on the table this morning is life. It is purpose and power by believing in Christ and receiving the breath of God, the Spirit, you see. Now, I'm going to close this way. When a group of people lives from a place of life that is true life, and they begin to become witnesses of this eternal kind of life showing up in their workplaces and in their parenting and in their friendships and in their challenges. Do you know what you call that group of people living that way? The church. The church. This is us. This is the church. This is what we're called to. And it is exactly what the world needs right now. And we're called to it, men and women. Now here's what I want you to do, and this is how we're gonna close out the service. We're gonna pray. And we're gonna pray specifically for specific people that need hope 
that need plan A, that need the breath of God, the life of God, to imbue them with a sense of purpose and a sense of power. And so I want you to take out the card that I gave you six weeks ago, if you have it, with that letter A on it. If you don't have it, grab your program. Just flip over to the front of the program. Take a pen, if you have a pen, and I want you to write on this big letter A on the front of the program, Jesus Christ, because he's always plan A. He's always plan A for you, for me, for everyone you need to know. Next, keep that pin in your hand. And I want to invite you, if you didn't have your card, if you have your card, you've already done this. But I want to invite you on the front of that, surrounding that letter A, to write the names of people you know, specific people in your life, family, friends, neighbors, relatives, that need plan A. Let's go ahead and start writing as I'm talking. And I'm going to ask Nate to go ahead and come out and start playing because we're going to pray in just a minute for these people. But here's why I want you to do this. I want you to be thinking about people that either don't know Christ, right? they, they're dead, right? they, they may not realize it, but they're dead. Or you're not sure if they know Christ, write their, write their names down. Or even Christians that you would say, they need Christ to breathe his breath on their life right now because they're struggling. Maybe a relational struggle, a physical struggle, medical struggle. Um, financial struggle, all kinds of life struggles. We all know people that are in these places. Just write down some names that, that need to be reminded of plan A. And all I'm asking you to do right now is just to pray for those names specifically. Write them down and you're gonna pray for them. Then after you leave here today, just take this, stick it somewhere where you'll see it. You put it in your Bible, put it on a mirror, put it in your car, just somewhere where you'll be reminded to pray for these people who need the answer that you have. So let's pray for them together. Father, I thank you that you have designed such a good plan as to give life to your people, the creation that you made so long ago and you actually had this in mind. You had life that is true life through your son, Jesus Christ, who would come and redeem us. And now, Father, we can't hold it in ourselves because we have been sent on a mission. And the answer is Jesus, but the vehicle of that, the vessel of that, are the men and women sitting right here, right here in this room, and all across the world, called the church. And so I pray, Father, that we would be willing to show up, that we would be witnesses of the life that you have given, I pray for those that don't feel like they have a lot of life to offer right now. I pray that as we go through this study, they would be brought back into a sense of your power and your purpose for their life. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand on your feet and I will send you out. As we go through this journey through Acts together, we're going to be stretched. I hope and pray we'll be stretched. We're going to be challenged. I, I've been challenged personally, even this week as I prepared this message. Here's what I believe. I actually believe the Spirit is going to give us power. I actually believe that. You know, call me crazy. You know, I believe God's Word is true. And I know you do as well. And so we should be living expectantly that God's going to be on the move through His Spirit in our midst, even as we're in this season of renewal. So let me give you this benediction. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that you ask or think. According to the power at work within you, 
to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout every generation, even our own. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen. Go with God.